Hi and welcome to a very special episode of Action Replay on DCU-FM. Gavin here and I'm joined by Ian Brennan and we're coming to you live from the Science Building in DCU as we host DCU-FM's annual Sports Journalism Panel. We have three very special guests from the world of sports journalism and I'll be chatting them from all things from sport memories to the challenges the industry faces. But without further ado, introducing our panellists. From the Irish Independent, Will Slattery is a digital sports journalist and also hosts the Throw-In and Left-Wing podcast on the Independent.ie. From the 42.ie, Gavin Casey is a sports writer and covers everything from GA to boxing and cycling, having previously worked at Balls.ie. And finally, Adrian Barry, sports editor of, the news, of news Talk, the award-winning sports broadcaster and a regular with Off the Ball. You're all very w- welcome on, lads, and uh, thanks for taking the time to come out. Um, we do have a live studio audience today, and uh, we'll be opening up the panel for a few questions in the last 10 minutes. So be sure to have your questions ready. Um, I suppose to begin, we'll have a little chat about uh, the Champions League and some of the news from the week, and it's been a good week for the English teams. Uh, who's impressed you the most, lads, this week? Uh, PSG goalkeeper impressed me the most this week. I don't know if anybody watched it last night, but he his capacity to get ahead of the shot even before the uh, opposition player had taken it was, was kind of remarkable. We couldn't imagine. Spurs really were probably the story of the week for me. That, like typically, um, the sort of game that uh, their near city rivals would have a beat probably 4 0 and everybody would have left the stadium and kind of felt okay about it. That was a reasonable outcome. But, uh, Gee, yeah, I was very impressed. And they themselves could have been probably three or four in down, but I was very impressed with the fact that uh, for a team who aren't obviously that experienced at that level of the tournament, yeah. they, you know, they, they lose three nil over two legs and everybody goes, this is fair enough. That's, that's what happens. You get the old cliches about the experience, but they, uh, they weren't having it. I thought that kind of reflected uh, like pretty well. But for a team that I was it was pretty uh, good. <laughs> I was shocked that I put on a bet on Spurs plus one just before Christian Eriksen struck that free kick. So I literally won my bed basically like a second later. So that, that's why I was so impressed with Spurs. Obviously, but Liverpool obviously won final last night. It was a Saturday result. Uh, you know, the, the port on team that was was absolutely useless. I don't know for that start. They did came second in the group with the so that's the kind of caliber perhaps we're dealing with. And it doesn't say that the Portuguese league is their own beating this season and get absolutely savage at all. And I know a lot, of, a lot of people were saying that Sadio Mane needs something to kind of like kickstart his season. I know he's been out of the spotlight with the likes of Mo Salah. A hat trick last night, like that's that's surely going to change the season. Yeah, you imagine so. I mean, one of the interesting things about Liverpool losing Phil Coutinho was that I suppose everybody was talking about their potent attacking four, but we rarely saw all four of them on the field, and it's always yeah. been a three. And maybe it'll work out better for them in the long run, like because um, it'll be easier for, for those three that remain to kind of forge an understanding. Maybe there won't be many all along, um, but it doesn't seem to be impacting them too much, and obviously. Uh, man is well capable of going forward there. Not and looking at the like competition itself, do you think Liverpool are really to be considered contenders or even dark horses at this stage after such a great victory? Uh, I would struggle. I would struggle with that much. It's really difficult to know what actually going to make this Liverpool team. And like they've gone through such peaks and drops over the course of the season that at times you're thinking. Uh, Clap outsides aren't many miles away, they're not going to pull off or something like that. Um, I don't know, yeah, like Will said, the quality of the opposition definitely is a factor in that. Uh, I don't think they'll be within an Arsenal draw no. It's been so long since an outsider has actually won the Champions League, like 2012 with Chelsea's last time you have to go back, and that feels like a different football in a lifetime ago. Obviously, the teams have a lot of money then, but the top teams have even more money now, and they just can stockpile so much talent. But it's very hard for me to see a team, even with Liverpool's talent, yeah. getting three big wins in a row. 
know you were saying before we came on, like even if you look at the 2005 Liverpool team that won the Champions League, if you actually look at the competition as a whole, I know you were saying even PSV were in the semi final that year. But like they have a prediction as well, like they're such a big game team. So like yeah, you could suggest they're, they're probably dangerous, but like the, you can only go with the well so many times. I think emotionally, uh, like so for example, maybe last night wasn't even that kind of game. I'm talking about more the sort of Anfield nights against be it Real Madrid or, or PSG or whoever. Yeah, you fancy them to actually you you could even see them having a resounding win or two, but I just think eventually the defense. Third party, like maybe their lack of defence more so will we'll probably tell and it's a it's a big ask of a of a collective uh, to, to, to keep dipping back into that well and, and try to kind of raise their game every time. I actually think if they get the away like first, no matter who they play, they'll have a very good chance of getting out of that tie because they're they're so capable of scoring on the road. If they have the host a really good team at Anfield first, they could easily lose that game at home. Yeah. But if they have to go away first, I strangely think that no matter who they're playing, they're gonna come away with a goal, maybe even two goals and very hard to beat them back in Anfield. Yeah, definitely. And I suppose if you, if a lot of you are dead in Liverpool, who do you see actually winning the competition just to finish? I'm uh, increasingly watching less and less sports than you've done, probably. Um, <laughs> this is uh, one of the downsides of um, getting a sports media in your classic section for two months. I'm trying to become less and less, but he was really very good. <coughs> I think. Um, I actually hate to say it as much as United fans, but I think Man City are like they're both these favourites for a reason. I think. I know, obviously, kind of history or recent his history dictates that they're going to pop it at some point. But if you look around them, I know that Real Madrid great victory against PSG in the first leg. I don't think they actually have enough in the tank anymore to do three in a row. Barcelona probably there thereabouts, but I just think there's a slight drop off this year in terms of the elite teams, and it might be it might be the George uh, out for somebody like Man City to come through. I mean, you, you can't write PSG off either. Like I know. Three went down, but you take Real Madrid back to Paris. If Madrid rests in the laurels a little bit, get an early goal, you never know. And like they probably need one kind of statement victory. PSG, um, we saw them like shit a statement defeat this time last year. But if they can reverse that at home against Real Madrid, that could be the uh, catalyst for them to go on and go, go, go the whole way. Uh, at the start of the season, I made a bet with a friend that Spurs win the Champions League. I was wearing a chicken filler roll every weekend for an entire season. <laughs> 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 I actually, the way he played the other night, I actually was really impressed with the man. A bit like the Liverpool kind of thing. I just think there's something about the way they're playing. I, they probably won't win, but they're going to be my pick. I just, have, I just really like the way they're playing with the Pochettino. I think things are cresting in the right way for them. There's been a lot of talk about how they haven't won a trophy, and you know, although they've played great football and they've done enough, but I, I just think they could possibly come good. We don't see what else they are because it's probably about 20, 21. So. Uh, I suppose to move the conversation towards sports journalism itself, lads, um, Will, tell us a bit about your role as a digital sports journalist and how it kind of like you know differs to maybe the role of the traditional sports journalism. Um, per se. Yeah, so my the baseline of my role really is to kind of just monitor and update the Irish Independent website uh, for breaking news throughout the day. And then the role is kind of what you make of it, obviously, and on the face of it, that's what you only concentrate on. You know, you still have to have a lot of work to do and be very busy, but as I think Gal will tell you, you're working online, you also want to, you know, do those more long-form pieces, you know, stuff that you actually maybe enjoy writing, because obviously there is the kind of day-to-day -day stuff that you just need to put up on a website, a sports news website, like breaking news, whatever's happening throughout the day. But to take the time to, you know, work on your own long-form pieces is very important, so I like to get a balance of that. And luckily at the end though, you know, they've actually started a couple of podcasts over the last year, two years, and it being a print kind of organization, you can't really have anyone to do it. So luckily for me, I was kind of the 
only person who asked, hey, do you mind if I also have it? So it, it wasn't that, that thorough of an interview process for it, but it's worked out well for me. I really enjoyed it. So I've kind of gotten to do a bit of experience in that regard as well. I think Gavis as well. Like, so yeah. that kind of helps maybe if you're willing to put yourself forward for those kind of maybe more broadcast readings to go? Yeah, well, like, I, I didn't necessarily put myself forward to it before, but similar to yourself, it just kind of landed on my lap and I just said, yeah, let me, I'll give it a bash, you know? And it's, that's why I think it's enjoyable. I think, like, for, people in this room, yourselves hosting a show, it's an extremely exciting time to be coming into this. Uh, like you're told in college, or at least I was, uh, for three years now there's no job. Yeah, there's we no still are, yeah. Yeah, still yeah. going. And yeah, like, I mean, I had a job while I was in college, and it's not as if I'm some, some sort of once in a generational talent, you know what I mean? I think it's a really exciting time to be going into it, purely because of what Will has said there, in that there are different facets to it now. It's not just about writing anymore. And I would advise anybody that is getting into it to have these strings in your bow, presenting a show like you're doing, being able to go in front of the camera and not look like a complete spoofer. Well, actually, I'll probably do. <laughs> <laughs> At least be able to convince yourself that you don't look like a spoofer. You know, there, there are so many other aspects to, um, to journalism now. I think it's important, given the changing landscape, to, to have a little bit of experience in each yeah, that's what I was going to say. Like, you really do have to be a jack of all trades. And I suppose that brings us on to uh, Adrian in terms of the work with Off the Ball. It's no longer just on the radio, it's, it's, you know, it's live on Periscope, Facebook Live, and stuff like that. It's, it's, it, you do everything, you know? Yeah, uh, tell me about it, Jeff. No one's really getting much sleep anymore. But um, yeah, we've kind of um, uh, diversified the product out over the last one. Like, uh, my background is sort of coming through like everything that Matt's talking about makes total sense to me like that uh, that thing of just being persistent and like it, it's been a never present thing like it's 98 since I came through college and it's there's no jobs in this thing the industry has totally changed since then but if you're consistent enough and eager enough and like um, you know willing to take chances and willing to do things that are not particularly appealing at times and to try and get foot in the door um, that's a must but yeah so, that, so my background is kind of through local radio, uh, music radio in Dublin, and like, you know, everyone on board, not even them are great radio stations, but not known necessarily for their sort of award-winning sports uh, output. Uh, so sort of working, working through that and then uh, getting the opportunity in, uh, with Newstalk when uh, five vacancies came up overnight uh, about five years ago, um, when second captain's lads left. and. Uh, so that was when I joined. And yeah, so it's totally changed since that, as you say, like uh, the middle of last, the start of last year, we decided we did a bit of research about maybe trying to diversify the product out a bit, um, trying to maintain the radio product, but actually make it a bit more out of it as well, recognizing what uh, the likes of 42 and the Indo are doing um, in pushing the boundaries. Because like, that's why I believe that it's probably no better time to get into the industry at the minute because it's so diverse and everybody can be a broadcaster and everybody can be a journalist. Like, it doesn't require the ridiculously expensive technology that it once did. Um, but yeah, that's, so yeah, we kind of, we've, uh, OTDLM that runs Monday and Friday nights, uh, we were just chatting about beforehand about, like the requirement for a full-time sports radio station in, in Ireland that's kind of bizarre, like for such a, we pride ourselves such a sports nut country, um, and we don't have one, it's sort of bizarre, but actually, like there might come a time that we don't even really need one anymore because of all those advances in broadcasting that it might not really be a requirement, but, yeah, no, what we're doing at the minute is um, trying to test and see if it's see if it's any good and if people want it. Yeah, well, I've been there for a second on how much things have changed. Just even when I left, I left BC five years ago, and uh, 
when I differentiated, it wasn't a single sports uh, position listed on intra, you know, whereas now you have 42. Like at the time, 42 was called the score. I think they had like two sports employees, maybe the editor and the deputy editor who were still there. Balls was operating literally out of a shed back then. Like I was in Ranley in someone's shed working with one other person. A job, I don't know if he'd even started yet. Like, so now even from there, and the Indo didn't have an online department. They, the stuff in the papers got bloated overnight at two thirty in the morning onto a website. I don't think they, it could be changed or anything like that. Maybe someone could edit the headline here or there, but there was no online presence at all. That's only in the last five years, pretty much. So it is a good time to be coming out from that point of view. Yeah, and I suppose um, to to kind of move away now uh, from the technical aspects of your job to go more into like the personal experiences that you've had, and I think I suppose the, the first question for all three of you would be. Um, what is your favourite sporting moment that you've witnessed over your over the course of your career so far? West League winning the Leicester Championship in 2004 has done the only pitch and I've ever partook in and sort of happy to do so and we're so shit uh, like that's whatever it is 15 years ago or whatever uh, like that's it there's literally nothing like we get to the Leicester final every couple of years and I get beaten up the gap by Dublin you really have to adapt like another country you're sort of looking to get any kind of interest in the question. Hands down, shitty provincial championship for 20 years ago. Fair enough yourself, Gavin. That's the one the other. I mean, I'm not as, uh, as long as the two that I actually like, <laughs> I think in terms of, is it, are we talking events that we do personally or just things Either we are? Either are, really, yeah. I think like, for the sake of, like, while you're out here, the, be the best thing I've covered was probably uh, Michael Conlon's professional boxing debut in New York because I know Michael a long time and we're roughly the same age. Like I have a reasonably good relationship with him, not, not great anymore actually after the NTK fan uh, has been on post in us in, in recent days. But like I've always kind of considered like he was about starting off his career, so was I around the same time. So to be there for that and to be there in an official capacity was, was pretty amazing. 5,000 people in Madison Square Garden. Obviously, that out of Egypt, walking into the ring was uh, good for the gimmick, I guess, as well. Um, and it was one of those moments, like, it probably was a, a pretty crystallizing moment for me because, say, even three years ago when I was starting out doing journalism in college, I'm thinking, you know, it's going to be 10 years before I can cover a fight in America. It just shows, like, how quickly things can move along. And particularly, it goes back to what I was saying about all these different avenues that you can explore in journalism now. I mean, part of the reason I was over there, like, I was actually over there for. And the Irish Examiner purely in a kind of a writing capacity, but I also was able to kind of offer balls I who I worked with at the, at the time a kind of a social presence there as well. So like Instagram stories or whatever the hell we're talking about, that kind of stuff, and there's value to all of that as well, you know. So that was probably the most um, most enjoyable anyway for me so far. What about yourself? Uh, from a kind of a work perspective, it was probably the final day of 2015 Six Nations when. Wales played Italy, Ireland played Scotland, and England played France, and it was kind of all three teams were going for the title, and it was permutations changing all day. Not only was it ridiculously exciting, but it was kind of, I was working for 42 at the time, and it was kind of the moment when it got saw, obviously papers were out for the next morning, so the 42 was probably one of the go-to, if not the go-to place to read what was going on throughout the day. No matter, you could have written absolutely any garbage that day, and it would have got like 100,000 hits, because like, everyone was just yeah. refreshing every single article, every second. And it just shows that there is, a need for good immediate content when a big sporting event is around. Like that's one thing, good thing I work out live, like a live 
kind of online setting. When it's a big sporting event, it's very pressurized, but it is, you know, a lot of fun. You're, you're working really fast, but, you know, everyone is pretty much reading the stuff that goes out on these websites because there's nowhere else to go, really. Yeah, that was actually another question I was going to bring up was uh, the constant high pressure deadline, especially in online. Do you think that has any like major impact on the quality of the journalism that you would produce? Not me personally, no. Mine is of the highest quality. No. <laughs> <laughs> but for others, uh, no. It's. I think it. Look, there's no point in saying it doesn't because we've all read online articles where it's littered with typos or inaccuracies, and that is uh, definitely a pressing concern. In the 42 ways, I'd suggest it's less of a problem these days, purely because our editors have created a culture in which it just won't be tolerated, not just by them, but by fellow writers. Um, like, from a personal experience, I don't find the sort of, like, immediate deadline particularly perturbing because, again, like, I've written a little bit for newspapers. Say, the example I gave there, writing for the examiner from New York, deadline for me was 11 o'clock in the morning because of the time difference, you know what I mean? And you're used to spit out 1,200 words on, you know, something you've seen on the street. So, I actually don't think the kind of nature of deadlines varies greatly from online to, to print, from my own experience anyway. It probably does a dilute quality of the work, possibly, but at the same time, look, if there's a breaking story and it could be the end of 42, wherever, three lines more to follow. Like, that's what you'll see yeah. online, like, if it's from print, but like, there will be more to follow, usually. So, if you come back in 10 minutes, you're still going to have it before the morning papers the following day, you know. So. Uh, I suppose to throw the question to Adrian, is the pressure similar in a radio context? or? Yeah, it's probably always been, like the slight difference is it's probably always been the life of radio reporters really that tends to be that sort of quick turnaround. Um, that's just a factor of life that, like technology again makes it much easier, but I mean reporters don't have years would have been, can I get to a phone box, how quickly can I get there to um, phone this report back in, literally phone it in. Um, but yeah, there's always been that pressure like we've a, you know, like that's, that's a kind of an easy thing when you're at, like, <coughs> Like back to the previous question, I was at the Grand Slam game in Cardiff in 2009, and so you gotta try and, I think, like about 10 minutes after the final whistle, try and submit that, put some sense in it, and, um, you know, come back to reality and try and deliver some yeah, sort of sense of what's happening. Uh, so, from a radio point of view, it's actually probably a bit different from, from the lads in terms of it's always been there, and, um, but yeah, it's, I, you know, I think. Um, yeah, it's probably always just been a factor of life for radio. I think um, the lot, like just interesting the lads talking about that sort of on the whistle report almost. We've um, we've a guy covering the Belfast Rave trial at the minute, so you know there's different degrees of like I'm a grass lamb game as well. Yeah. Like, sort of misstep or whatever. Whereas this guy is there's having no to submit that stuff, and he's um, like you know where we work, it's an environment with four or five radio sessions and now this online platform Alphabol.com and he's filing reports and filing audio reports and copy for all those sessions and the network and then he's on Skype and he's coming on with us and having to the same stuff so uh, that's going to be important stuff and uh, the hardest stuff obviously to get right and importantly get it right but there's always I guess been that's a slight difference between the tradition of having turned out and to be fair like it's you know yourself for radio news it tends to be 20 second reports so there's yeah. a gender tends to be that thing. I suppose you'd all speak up the pressures when it comes to deadlines and stuff like that. But um, to go back to personal memories, what was the kind of trigger, or what was like, what made you go into sports journalism? Um, she's on and off. There was really a moment I kind of wanted to do uh, journalism when I was younger. Like um, 
I have a real issue with the education system here that forces you to send these to decide what you're going to do for the rest of your life. And actually, the main thing that I figured out at 40 now is that I still don't know how to do it for the rest of my life. And um, uh, I think we really need to get back together with other countries with really much better education systems that, um, you know, the biggest piece of advice I would say is like, if you want to get into journalism. Um, I appreciate my audience here. Actually, this is a, I just realized that this is not the greatest piece of advice, but go and do something else. Of course, it's been cancelled. Um, but yeah, uh, so I didn't really, and uh, still don't know what I want to do with the rest of my career, to be honest, but um, it was never really a sort of a moment of, um, geez, I really want to do this, sports journalism, or uh, like, I'm infinitely jealous of a lot of my colleagues who say, yeah, God, I listen to. I remember this is Barry Davis commentating at 1985 at the Cup Final. That moment, I knew that's what I want to do for the rest of my life. Like that, still definitely hasn't happened to me. But, so it was a bit more of a did uh, communications college in the UK and um, really enjoyed watching sport, talking about sport. And um, so it was probably more of just a natural sort of thing to get in. I mean, I, I, I'm gutted I didn't have the sort of flashbulb moment of this is what I can do for the rest of your life. You know? Yeah, like I, I did have a, a one kind of moment, but my story is probably similar to, to the man that's living here in the sense that, like, I think the educational system, like, you're shown the beaten path and you're told that's the way to go, do your course, look for a job. You're, like, there's no sort of focus on kind of individualism or just finding your own way. And I think that's a problem with journalism, generally speaking, because, again, it goes back to the line there are no jobs, there are no jobs, everybody wrong. Like, it should be left to you to, to find a job, I think, and, and to actually figure out how to get one. Um, I was doing commerce with Chinese in UCC four years ago, because when I left school in 2011, the career guidance counsellor kind of said, well, you're vaguely interested in business, and the Chinese economy is flying, so off you go. <laughs> you know? And after two years, like I remember I was doing 12 pubs a couple of years ago, and we were in a pub court called the Old Oak, pub four, right, and the rule was, Everybody has to say thank you in a different language. So, you know, my friends are like, merci, grazie, all that. And the barman goes, okay, if anybody can say thank you in Chinese, I'll give you a free round. So I've got 25 of my friends going, go on, go on. Go on. And I was just like, nah. It didn't happen. <laughs> two years, two years I was studying Chinese, I didn't know how to say thank you. And that was probably the moment I realized, uh, not that I wanted to be sports journalism necessarily, but I, that this was not for me. Um, and the moment that I arrived, like, where it was actually a moment that had already happened, which kind of pointed me in the direction of sports journalism, which was, uh, similar to that, I always enjoyed speaking about sport, and I, I kind of generally would have an opinion on something that's going on in the sporting sense. And I remember writing to Ring Magazine, which is a boxing magazine, has like a mailbag, where the editor responds to questions or theories or whatever, and I'd written to them maybe two years prior, and they asked me, could they actually publish the letter in the magazine? They were like, you seem to have, you know, a bit of a flair for it. But at that point, I'd never even considered sports journalism as a job. It, it, to me, it seemed like, well, yeah, everybody has opinions on sports, but I kind of didn't realize people got paid to voice or write those opinions. Like, so it was never really, it never was put to me as a viable option until I discovered it for myself. Um, so that was probably the moment I just didn't realize at that time that it was a moment. Yourself, okay. Yeah, I don't know what people moment either. Uh, I just always really like sports and I enjoy writing, so. I just thought I'll have the two together and, and see where I go. Like, but that, that probably wasn't the best idea for, for 
plotting a career path. And uh, it's funny that Gav mentions that he did a uh, UCC in commerce. Like, that would be my dad's dream because he was constantly pushing me to do economics and finance in UCD. He wanted me to be an accountant. And even a couple of years back, I was accidentally, his name is William, so same name. I was accidentally sent an email that his friend sent to him where they were having a conversation about how he wanted me to still move into fucking accountancy or something like that. So, uh, yeah, I, I just kind of follow that. I, I always like sports, I enjoyed riding in school, uh, I enjoyed waffling as well. So, you know, I've luckily been able to marry those three things for the moment anyway. And I can always go back to the accounting, we'll see. I think we should like, come up with some, I'm going to come up with like a vented story for the lack of something. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was Barry David coming on here. I used to go to Crow Park and go with my dad when I was a kid and like tell me the story about one day I went in and like we were the sort of family who came up from my lawn at seven o'clock in the morning and sat outside with the packed lunch and the tea and all that sort of stuff and uh, then leave at half time but uh <laughs> <laughs> Finished commentating at that stage, he might have retired a couple of years. And he introduced me to this guy, but like, for, as far as I'm like, this was like, who is this guy? He was like, but, so I might try to retrofit meeting me all there as the delightful moment I knew from that second. Sounds good, sounds uh, good to me. Um, obviously, the way obviously mummies have a, had a light bulb moment, uh, so to speak, but is there, would, would you have had a favourite sport back before you went into sports journalism, and does that? Correspond to the favourite sport that you cover at the moment. Um, sorry. Um, it's an interesting question, actually. Um, I hated sports when I was younger. For I don't know why. I just didn't like them at all. I feel I was like quite. Let's say late, like maybe eight or nine. All sport. Yeah, absolutely hated all sports. Like my dad would always be like, like, with like Adrian, whatever you guys want to come to Crow Park, me to this game, to that game, and I was just like, no, no, I'm just saying, no. <laughs> I don't even know what it was. Well, one day he just all switched. I really liked soccer when I was younger, then I kind of got into game football and rugby. Now I kind of like all sports, but mostly rugby. But then, yeah, I look back and think, that was so weird. Why didn't I? Why didn't they be so often against sports? That's a, a mystery to me. I'm still. Yeah, I was obsessed with dinosaurs for most of my I've got a really dull pack of hairs. Like, again, Senator Will, I was such an underwhelming athlete as a child that I never thought I was going to be. Pretty much refined sandwiches. Problem with it. I try. I just prefer to live in like kind of a 
a utopian world where I just ignore all the bad stuff and I just focus on the good stuff. Like, I, I just want to go funny. I just take it with a massive pinch of salt. Like, I don't really. Sorry. I don't, I don't, I don't take sports that seriously. Like, I, I just see it as like kind of a, a there for our amusement and I just see them all as characters, especially in football. Uh, Who's the biggest caricature of stuff? Jesus. Like his first time. <laughs> uh, Roy Keane has become a bit of one yeah. you now. Like, the only Samander in the world football who does his own press conferences. I'm not complaining about it because goals. You see him on ITV whenever he goes on. And even a guy who works for us over in England who stays up until 12 every second Wednesday just to send us back a copy because it's hard to get it over here. And it's always really well because he's always, he's always going to be going on for us. They're all sort of characters. I think sport is um, like. I don't know if I'm maybe the exact opposite of your view of like I just find it all such like some of the the, the that post match stuff particularly just right like this Eddie Jones stuff that's going on at the minute. Do you know what I thought? No, he, but he doesn't mean any of that. He actually, yeah. Like it's just balls. Like it's just it's the Jose Mourinho, well, Eddie it's, Jones. But it's like it's so we throw out to like the usual kind of. I know it's he might be he's talking to the last but he doesn't believe it. But it's, it's I just hate this the, the kind of. How media managed the rest of them are, you know. But I, I, I think what he's doing is the exact same. It's in the exact same school as the media managed stuff. Like yeah. it's ultimately it's all controlled. Yeah. Right? Like the the, she's like if I think back on the amount of conversations I had post match with or at, like midweek press conference around with sports people over the years, like Ron Regard probably one that stands out that you knew when you were talking to him after a game. That actually he was having that conversation with Roy Keane, to be fair, he's another one. I haven't interviewed him very many times. But I do know that when, uh, to be honest, I'm going to start slightly picking heads with that here because he is also uh, a good player on my there. But you knew when you were talking to him that he was listening to what you were saying yeah. and gauging the question. Uh, and Ronald Gary is definitely one of those. But I just, I find a lot of what I have to say at the minute. I just, a lot of it I just really can't stomach. I think like they, you mentioned the Eddie Jones thing, and on one hand, you like what Will says is true, and that it's a little bit different. It's probably slightly, slightly more entertaining than the typical Joe Schmidt press conference. But there's just not a drop of sincerity in, in what no, he's saying. Yeah. In, in all your case, you know what I mean. So, to, I would probably, I would probably do lump them both in together as well, and just say like nothing he's saying here is real. It has no kind of real impact apart from maybe on. Craig Bellamy after a Welsh loss to whoever it was, Estonia or someone in Finland 10 years ago, he just calls out the entire team, but we just don't see it as much anymore. A bit of James McLean as well, maybe. Yeah. Mm. There's a great trip recently, actually. I don't know if this conversation has happened during the week about the value of sort of the post match interviews and that sort of stuff. And somebody t- tweeted out a, a link with Mick McGuire after they drew with, uh, it was Matthew Kildare against Offaly. And so he's talking to Neil O'Donnell, who's working for PG Carrier and uh, the game was ended in a draw, but he said they get into the conversation about how well Offaly had done back. And Mikko obviously thought that Offaly had beaten them. And uh, it takes me uh, three years ago. He goes, Oh, was it? Mikko said, Was it a draw? <laughs> and Mike goes, 
shit show by Conor McGregor. But instead, he tells me this incredible story of how he had suffered from depression, he could diagnose his bipolar, contemplated taking his own life, all of these things, and how he turned his life around and found an acoustic guitar. And all of a sudden, he's actually coming back boxing literally next month. And like, this was, you know, a kind of a chance encounter. Literally, added the guy on Facebook, he was under a pseudonym, somebody pointed me in his direction. And yeah. that, that's the most amazing interview I've done. And, and you almost got a better story out of it than you would have got. Oh, 10 times, yeah. 10 times better, yeah, 100%. What about yourself, buddy? Um, in terms of the best person I've interviewed or who I'd like to interview or both, um, I wouldn't mind sitting down with Jim Gavin Wiley just to see how many ways he could die as a simplest of questions. I was actually at a Leinster football launch two or three years ago and uh, I actually came really late. So this is the only reason I got to speak to him one on one because I got to talk, I was giving the wrong time. But he was standing there and I was just talking. We were standing in the hall and I was just, I just asked him simply, it's like, you're so cool the sideline you don't seem to enjoy managing Dublin like you enjoy winning all these games and he was just and it was just such a ridiculously stupid answer he gave like a real like kind of one of his real cliche answers and I was just like like that's like so I'd love to sit down like just two was in a room to see what how it developed like he would probably give me like you know nigh on nothing for like an hour but it would, I, I would find the experience interesting and in terms of the best one person or my favourite one or whatever, a similar kind of one to Gav, a bit off the beaten track, like a guy called Dylan O'Grady played rugby for Ireland, he got capped in 1997 around Christmas time, had hoped to play in the 1999 World Cup, but he ended up watching it from prison in Manchester. He got done for selling Class A and Class B drugs. Uh, he was involved with like a gang in Manchester and stuff like that. So that was an interesting one, you know. The, that's the best, the best stories come from other people, like, like other people going to Burlap, because you need to have like you need to be a very established journalist like Paul Cumish to be able to sit down with the most interesting people, like for many younger people like ourselves who won't be able to get Rory McElroy in. You kinda of have to work a bit harder to get those good stories, but there's a lot of people out there who other people want to heard of. And you can tell cracking stories and they're usually more than willing to talk, I found, because people don't really they you know, they haven't been bothered that much or, or they want to talk about their, their experiences. Now obviously when someone's been in jail it's a little more tricky, but you know, he was still he was still willing to talk about it. And like, you know, I don't want to talk to Joe here and I thought he played for, you know, played for Ireland, you know, he had the G's appeared, the G's Harry, he's probably seen Stanton, one of the, you know, I didn't say this in the piece, but probably one of the Stanton's many mistakes in retrospect, I was like, but like, he, he, he was super happy to talk about it as well, like, he sells medical supplies and taxes or something like that, he doesn't have the G's Harry anymore, but once like that, that, and there's so many of them out there as well, like, that's stuff that you guys can achieve yourself, stories like that that are waiting to be told, there's plenty of them, like, it doesn't have to be, a great big name like a McElroy because half the time these big stars won't really say anything anyway so yeah I still like talking to Gavin I think, I think Gavin will sit down with Kimmich at some point for an hour just to troll I think like Kimmich will put like hours and hours of research into Gavin's character and Gavin will sit down discussion and, yeah. they'll, well, they'll have a full and frank discussion about you know it's, it's all about the next game. It's funny, the only one-on-one interview he's done in his time as manager, I think, was with Malachi Kirk in the Irish Times a year ago, and it was, it was to pit, to, it was in the middle of the like, Dublin air show, he was flying a plane, and literally, that's how he talks about, like, he was like, <laughs> in the 40s. So I think he's, he's more than happy to talk about that kind of stuff, but be interesting to see if he ever comes out with a book, like, I think he might maybe do one of those leadership thing, kind of, you know, one of them being a leader, so he won't do, like, an actual nitty-gritty book, it'll be, like, I, a 350 page book with we were looking forward to the next game kind of we're coming up <laughs> <laughs>
But um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. just on that I've come up with something about three years ago, randomly, this like normally you get a sort of you know press release trip from PR company saying, Oh, we've got this person available and they do the circuit right but this was like one of the most random things ever this uh, PR company got in touch and said, Oh, Chris Eubank is gonna be in town on Saturday and he'll come in and do a piece and we we're like, Oh great, like I wonder what the sort of what brand is he working with, what like message will he want to get out there like after the time this reason. Like he just wanted to come in and chat and he wasn't doing anything anywhere else. And we sort of um, like it just landed with me anyway and I put a whole bunch of research into it and it was mad it was like a mad conversation it was needlessly a mad conversation with Chris Eubank and it lasted about an hour and at the end of it uh, like I couldn't decide whether it was a, the best hour of radio people would want to hear <laughs> or actually not a minute minute of it should go over there and uh, I was forced out of it so I put the full thing out of it. <laughs> <laughs> achievement for Irish sport in the next 10 years for your own personal point of view? I think winning the Rugby World Cup is uh, I don't know, I think it's a realistic possibility um, like dream stuff is the Republic of Ireland doing anything it um, <laughs> doesn't also reflect that likely to happen over the next while but um, I think winning the World Cup is becoming a realistic possibility, there might be a bit hamstrung by the fact that like this sort of Mental thing that they just can't get past. They haven't been in the semi-final. Like that might be a, that just might be a thing. But then, like you look at the methodologies that Joe Schmidt put, Schmidt puts into these things, and you think that actually maybe he's kind of the perfect guy to fight against, rage against that stuff, and instead of as he has done a winning mentality in that team, I think it's a. I'd love to see it. I think it's possible. Yeah, look at Clifford. I disagree with that. Certainly, from the nation boy perspective. Because they have such a greater chance of actually going around and achieving something than the footballers, I think it's, it's probably the best answer. But like, you're right about the mental block. I do think over the last four years, there's probably been two things. And Schmidt said, one, have backup players for every position that can slot in very seamlessly, and two, greater sales of this supposed mental fragility that predates even this current crop of players. I think so. Yeah, from a national perspective, it's got to be unbelievable. Like, like I'd love to see. Yeah, I don't know kids bring it back to boxing, but some of the young guys coming up now, Mick Condon, Jason Quigley, for them to go on and actually achieve their dreams and win world titles because these are guys that, that you know, carry the tricolor under the ring proudly. Like, and they, Irish, Irish boxers are different to boxers from the rest of the world in that boxing is a very individualistic sport, obviously, but these guys are proud to represent their countries and uh, they do it, I think, magnificently for the most part. So to see some of them actually go on and, and um, 
for labor and constellation, I think uh, we can take part in that as well. And yourself? Yeah, I guess the biggest achievement that we could probably get as a nation that's realistic is probably, I would, I'd love to say winning the Rugby World Cup, but we haven't been past the quarterfinal, uh, but that is probably it. And I don't think we'll ever have a better chance than we do when Joe Schmidt's the coach, and this is probably going to be the last time he will be the coach of the World Cup, so this is probably the best chance we actually do have of winning the World Cup. And the draws are relatively kind that if we win our build, England and New Zealand should be on the other side of the draw, so we would only have to beat one of them to win the World Cup. I don't think we will win the Rugby World Cup, though, but that is the one we should go. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's, it's something for, for dreaming in, in the future, definitely. Um, uh, any other team put up in any investment? interesting one. Like, now we're at the stage where like, we'd be sitting here in like, 30 years time and being like, the one, one, you know, 38 of the last 39 matches would be the 2010, the only one. That's, that's Hopefully, common sense <laughs> at some point sets in and they just like detonate the entire. Uh, I mean, they're obviously making inroads in already with the Super 8s, but just because of the potential chapters would be amazing. Yeah, um, I suppose to, to look ahead to, to kind of take into account the people that are, are joining us in the room tonight. Um, what do you think this future will hold for sports journalism? You know, will future sports journalists have to be kind of a jack of all trades, be that in you know having to report on multiple sports on multiple platforms? And is there any other advice do you think you can give to, to those in the room? Yeah, you're all doomed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, jack of all trades, master of SFA, I would say. Like, I don't think you necessarily... People often ask me, you know, like, when are you going to branch into one particular sport? Well, like, I don't see why I pigeonhole myself, so particularly so early in my career. Um, I think if, you're, if you narrow yourself into one sport, you're probably pissing into the wind a little bit in the current environment. I also think that you're going to miss out on some amazing stories. I've never written a, a UFC article in my life, um, but I just interviewed a guy who's making his UFC debut on Paddy's Weekend a few days ago and some of the most, the most amazing stories I've ever heard, you know. So if you go into a narrow-minded, you're going to miss out a lot, and uh, you're, also, you're also obviously limiting your options. Um, jack of all trades, yeah, I, I think going back to what we were saying at the start, if you can throw, you know, throw your hand into every ring in a way and, and actually do a little bit of video stuff, don't be afraid of it. I mean, I've never had a notion of presenting, not even, you know, not to mention Facebook Live or live events or anything like that. Like, I would have recoil at the very idea, but it's easier than it looks, to be honest, and uh, you do become a lot more valuable to publications when, particularly like Will now, who's, who's doing a lot of it as well, where you can sit down and meet in front of the live audience, meet in front of the microphone or whatever, and, and chat shite for a you know, it, it, is, uh, it is an asset. Yeah, I, I agree with Gav, like you need to, for you guys learning, like if you haven't done so already, you need to be able to write, to talk, to speak on camera. You know, you need to, if you only are focusing on one sport, yeah, Gavin, you're getting it all wrong. This is, like, you're not going to be hired as a soccer correspondent by the Irish Times or by 42, or by anyone, even, even a small website. You need to be able to write about a vast majority of things and start your career, write about them well. Like, you shouldn't be closed off to any of the major sports. Like, fair enough if you don't want to write about cricket, you don't really have to in Ireland, but, like, you know, we have some people coming in for interviews and like one or two of them said, oh, but I, I just have no interest in GAA. Like, even if it's true, don't say it. <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, you just need to be kind of have a good breadth of knowledge. You need to be really focused on. We were talking about earlier why I didn't come in on it was the, the typo thing that when you're when you're working fast in an online environment, or even if you're working in print, like you should be embarrassed to send my copy if it's filled with typos and have. But you need to read it yourself. You need to be able to work really quickly, but not without sacrificing that much accuracy. Like you're never going to have to turn around ten thousand word feature in an hour, but you will have to turn around like. 200, 300 word pieces in a very short space of time, and you need to be able to 
upload that yourself with no no typos to a good standard. So there is a lot you need to be able to do. It's probably harder for you guys in a sense to, to, to come out and maybe it would have been you know, 25 years ago when you could maybe have someone else there to look at your copy and edit it for you. Uh, but I think it'd be better for you. It'd be a better, I think you'd be a better well-rounded journalist. And as Gav said, you know, it's good to come in if you, if you can, you know, say yes to things, if you get an opportunity to do a bit of, uh, you know, radio or a bit of, you know, presenting, take it because it'll be a valuable skill. And then if you're looking here in a publication but they don't have anyone else to do it, you could be allowed to ask to do it. That's all I think pretty much so. Chance to remember this. Like, and I, I, I think, you know, typically speaking, journalism students are going to be very concerned about the writing process, the creative process, and things like that. Don't be too concerned if you're not using, you know, 12 syllable words that your mates are using. Because if you can write concisely, and as Will says, if you can write accurately and work independently to the point that an editor can read your copy and not be concerned by what might be in there, you're ahead of the game already. Because trust me, like I've come away, I've, I'm only out of college 18 months, and people I was coming up with might have scratched this for the record, but my thought of my age is, you know, it's, you're like, you're really digging all for yourself if something is there, reply to that, an editor knows, Christ, I have to check this every single time. If, if you're coming out with clean copy, even in assignments that you're writing them now, you are a step ahead already. It's funny that Gav mentions the use of 12 syllable words, because I know you guys are all in your portfolios at the moment, and uh, I, when I did mine a few years ago, I was away whenever they were giving them back, so I never got mine back, I got mine recently at the friend and we were rereading the pieces, Good lord, it was so overwritten. I was actually, you know, you want to impress people with how good a writing where you think you're Vincent Hogan or whatever you are, and, and it's just some of the, the intros were so embarrassingly like flowery and overwritten. If I was given that now by someone on the intro, I'd be like, fire this guy. Like, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, that, that's, I guess, the temptation when you're young and you want to impress people. But I guess, yeah, don't be worried. Don't be, you know, saying, oh, I have to make this like a really, like, like flowery intro, great big words. Like you'll find that maybe in time when you get more comfortable delivering good clean copy, that you will feel more confident to maybe you know work you know a bit better and, and, and kind of gloss it up a bit. But don't feel you need to do that coming out of the back because you'll end up pre-reading your stuff and just thinking you said again after the heat. If if you know your topic and you know your subject, you're in fine feathers. Honestly, I mean it's it's something that if you're passionate about writing, if you're passionate about the thing you're writing about. Kind of speak, not mention right, but it's you get that point across more easily than you might expect when you're writing it. Because ultimately, there aren't a lot of other people out there that are in, like that are, I suppose, covering the topic in that capacity. So if you if you know what you're doing, there's no need to try and impress anybody, particularly editors and stuff, and especially when you're coming out of college and you're trying to get a foot in the door somewhere, like. I, the other day, a colleague said to me, I was reading, um, I, I wrote an interview with the Rink Car Girls because they've been, last week, I think it was Darts and Formula One had done away with the um, Walkout Girls and there's this whole sexism thing going on. And my colleague said to me, oh, um, your piece with the Rink Car Girl introduced me to a new word, uh, sinecure. And like, three years ago, I was like, oh, that's great. He didn't know a word that I used. But I was like, oh, Jesus. Like, because if he doesn't know it, nobody reading it knows it. And that, that reflects badly on me, to be totally honest. If you're using a word that you wouldn't use down to the public domains in a, in a piece, you're probably going, you, you probably put a foot wrong somewhere, you know. There's a very good point on that, I think it's really important, actually, um, that, and it's exactly what the lads are saying, uh, and it covers both the points that you're making about journalism in the future that I think, actually, if journalism was about five years ago, that's sort of the tipping point for me in terms of people's uh, diversity of work, but the story, is king. Like we're finding that people 
that come through from journalism or communications uh, sometimes lose, lose sight on so that and like the story is absolutely king. And if you remember that and keep that centered for everything you're doing, you're not going to do very well. That's an extremely concise way of yeah. saying what we've been trying to say for the last ten minutes. <laughs> 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 yeah, that'll yeah, override a bad story. It's fine, good one in the first place. Yeah, I suppose uh, our panelists have talked a lot to the audience today as well, and to I suppose just to close, uh, we'll open up to questions from the audience because I'm sure there's plenty. I'm gonna need just to like say your name as well. Okay. Uh, Hugh Farrell. Yeah. Uh, I was just wondering if you thought there were any sports like in Irish media that tend to be like over broadcast or under broadcast, because like especially when you're looking at stuff that you don't tend to see in bigger papers like MMA or maybe Formula One or whatever you could be interested in, like are there any that you prefer to be up there or any that you think are talked about like way too much? And newspapers specifically, is it? I mean any sort of non-specific ever, because I know you can find like specific MMA websites or Formula One ones, but any that you could sort of tend to find in a bigger media outlet. Well, I'd be interested to get everyone's opinion here because I've seen a lot of people talk about rugby and people saying that rugby is being pushed forward by, you know, the, the times and the end of for it all, and, and that there isn't as big an appetite that these publications would have you believe, or that they're set, they're, they're trying to over promote it. And on 42 as well, as well. But I don't, I don't believe that's the case. I don't know if you, what, what everyone else. Do you guys think that rugby is promoted too heavily, or that's it's difficult? It's difficult because I'm. Mad into rugby now, so it's actually difficult because I love, I love it, but it probably does get disproportionate to my coverage, to be honest. The one thing that I'd say at that point is if I get one more CV or a call or an email from somebody going, I'm writing about UFC, do you want to publish my stuff? Um, that's, that's definitely one thing that sort of stands out for me that like, it's a fairly niche sort of thing. Um, but it's also not as niche as you think because you're going to have. Had thirty emails saying the same thing. It's like people are sending emails saying I'm writing about this, nobody else is. But yeah. actually, there are a lot of people with the same idea. Yeah. You know? I'm writing about this, nobody else is. I'm writing about this, nobody else is. Exactly. I'm writing about this, nobody else is. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to put it out. <laughs> okay. was like, it, it, I suppose the rugby argument is an interesting one. I'm, I'm saying to yourself that I'm a fan of it, and it's difficult to kind of remove yourself and view it objectively. I know there are a lot of people out there that are probably a little bit paranoid that because some of the major publications in the country are maybe ran by privately educated people or people who went to rugby schools per se, um, that we're getting force-fed rugby. I think a lot of it actually comes down to the commercial aspect to it. It's an eminently more responsible sport than many. And then you have you know ad campaigns, uh, hashtag team of us, or this is rugby country. I think that's actually where the problem lies for a lot of people more so than rugby coverage itself, it's what you're seeing on billboards on the streets or seeing on your TV ads, like these emotive, um, so supposedly spine-tingling montages of this mud-covered men crossing the country. countries up there with keep the recovery going. Absolutely terrible slogan. They're not going more hand than good, I think. I say it's like process going on, you the soccer fan, I'm like, oh, this is so cool. Yeah, <laughs> but like, I mean, if you're sitting at home and you're, you're on the fence about rugby and somebody is telling you that your country is rugby country, I mean, I'd be like, piss off. <laughs> you know, so like, I agree with Will, I think it's done more harm than good. Like, to, to go back to your question as well, like, are there sports that I would like to see receive more mainstream coverage? Absolutely. Like, I'm a boxing writer and it's difficult to get 200 words in a newspaper with regards to boxing. 
Are you an MMA fan yourself? Yeah, yeah. yeah so I mean, Jesus, you have your own problem. Boxing, actually. I, like we're such a we are a pop, we are we are a boxing country. This is boxing country. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I don't understand on that basis that like there are very few. Jerry Callum is one to stand out for. Like and he's in Portugal, kind of retired at the moment. It's like specific boxing journalists with specific boxing outlets on a regular basis in our media. It's it's a difficult sport because if you were to view rugby as marketable, boxing is the complete opposite. Um, particularly given what's happened uh, surrounding a couple of boxing events in Dublin in the last few years, if boxing is thriving in Dublin, it's not going to be thriving anywhere else in the country. Um, I think as well, <laughs> I, I believe that the fact that boxers are, um, let's say, unique thinkers uh, is is an asset or it's, it's an advantage to me when I write about them. But for a lot of people. Uh, they're likely to say anything, and maybe you don't necessarily want that trouble in your newspaper. You don't want Tyson Fury making disparaging remarks about women, or you don't want Conor McGregor uh, threatening to break into a or ride into a Brazilian favela on horseback and exterminate the population. It's just not what we want. <laughs> so maybe the sports shooting themselves in the foot a little bit, but I would suggest that that can often be more interesting than fucking best has his eye on the prize ahead of even visit or something like that, you know. And I think that's where the problem is for a lot of people who are fans of me sports is that you'll see this banal headline about, you know, almost like Jim Gavin isn't from an Irish rugby player and you have um say who I don't know, Paddy Hoolan retired now, but some a colour character like that who didn't get the coverage is sitting on the wings ready to talk about anything and is being ignored I suppose by mainstream media. So that it, it is an issue. If we're not, like I think if we're not on the market people like because it's just interesting to talk about the marketability of rugby versus boxing. Like if you look over the last ten years, Michael Conlon, Adam Barnes, Andy Lee, Katie Taylor, like these are unbelievably marketable people who generally aren't the people who are gonna put, you know, the wrong say the wrong thing or make make a misstep. Like if we haven't moved forward with the coverage over that period of time, it's hard to see how we would ever do it again. The thing is, well, like newspapers, like they're far from archaic. I'll like, well, read newspapers. You know, I think some of the best sports writing in the country still happens in newspapers. Don't get me wrong, but I suppose if you're to look at people generally who go out and buy a newspaper, I mean, to them, they might read one headline about Shane Ross saying, "Oh, MMA needs to dust itself off and cop on a little bit and work with us here." You know, they're not seeing then John having a statement in response to that saying, "Minister Ross, you're talking extra cold." You know, they're only seeing this sort of old-fashioned perception of MMA, cockfighting, all that, they probably think there's chairs involved, you know what I mean? <laughs> so like, it's a difficult one to break into, and I think as well when you're, when a sport has been introduced to a country, and again, I mean in a mainstream way, by somebody like McGregor who is at best divisive, it's, <laughs> I could see from a newspaper editor, newspaper editor's perspective how you maybe would want to keep that at arm's length until it sort of, becomes even more mainstream again and maybe slightly less controversial even though to me and I'm not an MMA fan the arguments that it's not a sport are, are ludicrous I mean it's not a, so people who say MMA isn't a sport you don't get to decide you know what I mean it already is a sport you, you can't disagree that it's just fact it's just difficult for I think combat sports maybe it's, it's almost like a, a separate argument but it is difficult to kind of Sneak down into newspapers. Are there other sports? I mean, you mentioned cricket, like Ireland becoming a test nation in the last um, six months. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there are plenty of other sports as well. The argument that, that rugby is we're, we're a little bit oversaturated for rugby maybe stands up 
But then, like when you ask, a lot, a lot of it's in the resources as well. Like a lot of papers just simply can't afford to cover on any sport, so they just put the resources into the biggest one. A lot of it is just economical. Yeah, like we, what I mentioned the NDK plan earlier, like which kind of, if you're not familiar with that, it's just uh, players who are managed by uh, Macken, like Global, who uh, were co-founded by Daniel Kenny in some years back. He's since been removed from the equation. Uh, this company has decided to ban all media in the Republic of Ireland from being into, for being able to interview their players, which include Michael Conlon, Paddy Barnes. Um, and we were, as a collective, the boxing writers in Ireland were trying to figure out how we might respond to this because I simply won't stand for it. As far as I'm concerned, they're banned from being interviewed by me until they say so, you know what I mean? But I wanted to have a collective response. And we realized there's four of us. There is literally four of us writing about boxing in the South of Ireland. Like, there's four of us banned, all the publications are banned, but there's only four writers affected. And that's like, 10 years ago, nearly every major newspaper had a boxing correspondent to do. You mentioned Jerry Callum, one of the greatest sports writers to ever come out of this country. Now, in fairness, Jerry, he's just sort of semi-retired through age and whatever he has about the health problems. But like Kevin Byrne in the Sun, you probably know yeah. no longer writing about boxing in the Sun. Kieran Gallagher was doing three hours for all the papers, no longer writing about boxing. You know, at some point, it, it goes to what you're saying. Like, it, 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 it's a, a resource thing eventually. There's still plenty of people writing about uh, working in football and GA and the other sports because newspapers are struggling. You can't afford to retain the services of a JP Winstar spot. Um, I suppose just before we finish as well, we'll open for one more question. Yeah, maybe just one or two, maybe make quick answers this time. That, Sorry. Was, that, that was very comprehensive. <laughs> <laughs> okay, a long question for short answers. Um, I agree with you about uh, story is king, content is king, but I'm going to ask a platform question. Um, with the second captains having over 9,000 subscribers on Patreon, is the future of podcasting? Uh, part of the future, I would think, is uh, podcasting. <coughs> it's not going to be the, I think the, you talk about platforms, I think the future, as far as I can see it, and I would say this given that we've just put an entire business around it, and it would better be, uh, is probably multi-platform uh, broadcasting. Like It's the one theme that keeps coming up in this conversation tonight, um, and I think that I see some sort of a world down the track, I wholly accept it's not going to be as simplistic as this, but where newspapers become media houses, where radio stations become media houses, where web, traditional websites become media houses, and ultimately TV stations become media houses. I think, I kind of think that's where it's headed. It sort of feels like over the last little while that we've moved, that pod, like podcasting was the rage about five years ago, and if you weren't doing podcasting, you were up to nothing. Um, whereas, like, it feels as if it's part of the bigger picture now, and like even dealing with, like a big part of my job is dealing with the commercial side of things, dealing with brands. Podcasting is not really something that they're coming, knocking the door down for, to be honest. Like, it's a hard metric, actually, to uh, even put a, put a value, value, uh, value behind. There are some amazing podcasts, obviously, uh, being produced uh, at the minute, and so it isn't really to finish that, but I do think that uh, multi-platform probably is going to happen. Sorry, that was a bit too long. No, but it, it, like, what you said there is interesting as well, because you mentioned second captains, and when they left, off the balls, they are like people knew who they were basically from the radio, so they had a bit of an advantage in, in starting podcasts and that they were household names. Um, five years ago, podcasting was still kind of, I think, revelatory and it was a little bit new, and it's like, oh, wow, this, this could be the future. But I think since then, it's very difficult now to kickstart a podcast from scratch because, firstly, the market is very saturated, secondly, like. 
because so many people are doing it, if you're to, if like even the 42, we don't actually have a great new podcast at the moment, and it's difficult for us to sit down and say, let's start a podcast network because there already is second captains. There's all, all there's the left wing with Will Snyder and Lucas Sterling. When's it? Yeah. Uh, so it's, for us to then say, well, actually, we're entering this market, it's, you know, I know it's going to be good, but how can you convince people to listen to it when there's all, they already are subscribed to so many? And all of a sudden, podcasting has become like a, almost like a, a minor factor in a, in a far bigger picture. And I would say, even as recently as two years ago, uh, prospective clients were looking for podcasts to the point that, like, if you were negotiating with them, negotiating with them rather, they would insist upon having a podcast as part of the deal. Now, as you said, it's, it's not really, not really totally relevant. Just from an end perspective, like they're a very good supplementary part to what we do, and they brought in money since we started doing it. Like it takes, we took maybe a year to build up an audience where we get sponsors, and now we have sponsors, we are bringing in money, but it's still a small fraction of the overall work to the company. So I think there is a, maybe a cap on what you can really bring in for podcasting, unless you're a Bill Simmons in America with millions of subscribers. You know, recently in the Irish market, there's probably only so high you can go in that regard. But it has been a success from the Indus perspective, but it is just a small portion of the pie rather than maybe an overall thing. But the second captains also be fair, they, they, it took them seven years to have an audience maybe big enough to support that 9,000 listeners. How many podcasts can maybe break out like that in like seven years before maybe building up to that kind of subscriber base? Yeah. Uh, just another question here. Uh, Gavin, you spoke about you know Irish boxers wearing the tricolour proudly. Uh, Will, you said you know sports very much about entertainment. I know News Talk are very good at asking hard questions, you know, with uh, Lance Armstrong interview and the, the doping in Munster. I was just wondering about your opinions on Irish rugby and having a situation where a portion of the team don't even sing the national anthem from a supporter's point of view, from people who cover sport. What, what's your opinion on having a, a national anthem like that and players representing the country? What's my opinion on them not singing it? Or yeah. Or, you know, should we do away with it and have the, the, the soul anthem itself, just from, from people who put a lot of importance on sport? I, um, I'm, uh, um, I, my view is probably that, probably maybe slightly different from most people. I would, uh, I would love to have a borderless society. Uh, I hate the idea of, uh, sorry, that's a bit strong. I'm not a huge subscriber to the idea of nationalism and everything that goes with it. Uh, for me, I think, firstly, which anthem do you do away with? I just know that they, they introduced um, Ireland's Call to try to get everyone singing, and because some people maybe wouldn't be comfortable singing it back home. Uh, I have no problems with it myself, I was just wondering but are, your, are, your opinions are on it. Are you talking about getting rid of Ireland's Call and, and leaving her on the or getting rid of her uh, on the Getting rid of her on the our, our captain's from, from Northern Ireland, and uh, you know, people have their own styles, but I know particularly some people just. Can't, can't sing it, you know. I think to get rid of one of the other, like, look, let's be honest, uh, Ireland's call is an abomination. You know, what getting rid of it, what that would represent, I think, would. Yeah, I think the factor is that they play on one team and, and so little is made of it, really, for the most part. It's been like that since the foundation of the rugby team. I, I think it's one of the, the better things that we have in Irish sport, from that perspective, like the, the, the North and South mixing like that. I don't have a problem with the anthem issue. Maybe it's easy for me to say because I'm not from Northern Ireland and I don't have to you know, grapple with these kind of dilemmas. But uh, 
I think it's one of those things where if a lot of people will come down and decide, oh, well, why do we even sing Ireland's Call like when uh, most of the players don't sing it? Like I've been, you've been in the press box, I'm sure, the Aviva, and for the anthems, most of the Irish press will stand for Ron Venus sitting at Jerry's for Ireland's Call, which I found strange. But why, I mean, firstly, I don't think it's a, a major issue, but I also think that people who call for Ireland's Call to be removed, like, there are people on that team representing your country per se, whose anthem is not a wrong thing, whether you like it or not, you know what I mean? So what, are, what the Irish rugby team represents, I think, is more important than songs and, uh, as you mentioned, borders and things like that. They could get rid of one, but just be needlessly divisive. And I also think, like, and I know you're not annoyed by it, but there are people who are annoyed by it, but get a life. <laughs> I'm just I'm just conscious just that it is it's something that's not done everywhere and as writers who you know express opinions I was just wondering if you did have it I love hearing you know you don't care you know, you know you're not mad pro nationalism and it's great to hear writers like yourselves with journalists just speaking and, and doing away with it and, and, and focusing on what is important Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think we have time for just one last question here. Hi lads, uh, you alluded to earlier the depressing prospect of Dublin continuing to dominate football for the next 30 years. Um, my question is, who will be the next team to knock them off their perch and when will it happen? The correct answer is Donegal, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> In a, I'm, I'm, clearly we're not talking about Leinster, obviously, in a national context. Um, you said Kerry, I actually got really impressed by Kerry this year. They were seven to two to win the All Ireland a couple of weeks ago, and uh, I was very thankful by that. So I think, um, and everybody's been talking about David Clifford, and he's an unbelievable player, and we saw what he was doing, like, got totally out of it. Uh, everybody else got totally out of their debt against him in the minor championship last year. An unbelievable player, but uh, Sean O'Shea coming through there, and there were other players as well. Um, and they have the experience of Donahue's back for another year, and uh, that sort of stuff. I really. I'm not sure how many more times may all can go back to the well, to be honest. Uh, I really fancy Kerry. I think they might do it this year, actually. Ah. I'd say this year might be a bit early now, in fairness. No, I'd say a year or two to cut the teeth. Two. and then. I was going to say Kerry this year as well. Like, everybody, like, everybody's talking about decade-long domination, things like that. It doesn't really happen in sport, regardless of the time. Well, like, it doesn't happen as often as, like, say, example from the minor, like Rosenberg and the Norwegian League, yeah, they win 10 leagues in a row because they have more money than everybody else, but sounds like Dublin. Remember, like, when Shamrock Rovers reached the Europa League group stage, yeah. it was like, oh, they're going to dominate Irish football for years. Uh, they didn't. When Dundalk, uh, Dundalk last year, um, doing obviously unbelievably well in the Europa League, and Stop domination, but then they didn't really push on ahead of the, the rest of the pack. Obviously, Dublin are ahead of the rest of the pack. I just think that there are more factors to this than just having superior players and superior financial resources. I think there's also an element of how do you keep going back every single year and retain that same motivation? Because at some point, a team will want it more. That's that's like by the law of average in sport that happens. And some at some point, a team will will, will clip them. And realistically, like it'll be the Q horse and then side west. For what it's worth, I think Dublin will win the final in a row, but I also think Kildare actually might beat them in Leicester in the next maybe five years, which isn't that, you know. That yeah, Kildare have been dominant at under 21 level, really. They've, they've beaten Dublin two or three times in the past few couple of years, so it's definitely coming to some degree. Um, this year, guys, it's coming. Prepare yourself now. <laughs> 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 
Um, yeah, so I think that's all we've got time for. And um, first of all, I'd like to thank the audience. It's actually a good few people turned up. Thanks to everyone who came. And more, more importantly, I'd like to thank our three panelists, Will Slattery, uh, Gav, and Adrian. So yeah, to conclude, um, be sure to listen to Action Replay on Monday at 6 o'clock. And uh, I've been Gavin Quinn, William Brennan, and th thanks for